Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. We're sitting alongside president and founder of the Hoban Law Group, Bob Hoban. Today on the Hoban Minute, we're talking about if we are on the verge of federal cannabis legalization, and we are joined by attorney Lily Lentz. Lily, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited and happy to be here. As are we. And so let's jump into it from this angle, which is in an unprecedented time like we are in right now, things become more attractive. And if we look back to the Great Depression and we think about alcohol prohibition, we can see maybe some similarities. And people have raised this point, uh, particularly with respect to whether or not this industry is recession proof. But it warrants the question, does this make cannabis legalization more attractive at the federal level as we try to rebuild our economy? Put the question to you. Yeah, so I think it's pretty common in the cannabis space for us to view the current state that cannabis is in as analogous to that of alcohol that alcohol was in during uh, the Prohibition era. And during the Prohibition era, it came at a time when we entered into the Roaring Twenties, when um, the stock market was really getting up off the ground. Everybody, all the people were throwing all their money into the stock market. Employment was great. Everything was great until it wasn't. And we hit the Great Depression. And, and just I think it's noteworthy, too, that we have to remember alcohol was still illegal during the Great Depression, so they couldn't even legally drink during their economic downturn. And then Franklin Roosevelt comes and runs against Hoover for president on a platform that called for the prohibition or a repeal of the prohibition of alcohol. And he won by a landslide. And so fast forward to today, we, we like to use history to try to predict what's going to happen in the future. And so amidst this pandemic, COVID-19, this economic global recession that we're going into and in light of a presidential candidate, uh, presidential um, election coming up, and also in light of popular opinion of cannabis is at probably an all-time high since we started making statistical data out of popular opinions. And so, I mean, is it crazy to theorize that perhaps one of our presidential candidates might steal a move out of Roosevelt's playbook and run on a platform that calls for a repeal of the prohibition of cannabis? You make an excellent point there. And, and, and it is one of those things that I was talking about with somebody earlier. And we were talking about what's the future hold for cannabis legalization and how does COVID affect it? And we said, look, the elephant in the room is the election in November. And, you know, despite what you might think, politically, it's an absolute toss-up, right? Unless something changes, it's flipped the coin in the air and you don't know what side it's going to land on. Uh, the polls would seem to indicate that. So, you know, not trying to get political here, but, you know, as you look at the different positions that the candidates have taken, Biden's position has not been particularly friendly historically towards cannabis. And Biden's position has also been, well, we should have criminal justice reform and people get caught with cannabis, they should go to rehab. Nothing about legalization or commercialization. Now, 
talking about stealing a page from a playbook to get elected, I wouldn't pass put anything past our current president, let alone announcing a week before the election that, hey, if you vote for me, I'll legalize cannabis. I mean, any of those things are possible, right? But given where we are, nobody's outright saying we're going to make this a priority. What, what are they saying? Well, so I have seen those Joe Biden uh, bits about the sending him to rehab instead of hit. I've, I've seen Joe Biden very much as, I mean, he comes from the Obama administration, which did great things for the industry. Obama didn't write out, say, yeah, let's legalize pot, but he let the states do what the states were going to do. And he didn't, he, he told federal law enforcement to stand off. So you'd think that Joe Biden would have a little bit more confidence in his, in his step. Um, but I, I completely agree. I think President Trump is follow as much as he likes to talk about Obama, he's kind of following suit with the states are, that's really all I've heard him say is the states are handling it. We're going to let the states handle it. But if his votes are down, oh, yeah, I think you can guarantee he's going to try to grab, I guess, what the numbers I'm seeing are 60% of Americans are pro-weed. So why not try to reach that, that population somehow? Well, I, I want to raise this point, which is that it seems like in the wake of this pandemic, uh, politicians at the federal level have been forced to think about cannabis more than they've ever wanted to, right? Whether it's in, you know, in the language of these bills, where there's cannabis language in there, and you have someone like McConnell on the floor getting upset, or you have at the, all across the country, you have these businesses being labeled essential, that obviously has a significant effect going forward just on the perception of everything. So the issue is just getting closer and closer and closer to politicians' faces, whether they want to deal with it or not. Uh, interested in your thoughts on that. And I would, uh, I'll add one other thing in there, which is does the, the fact that hemp has really entered into the national conversation. And when you think about hemp farming and hemp growers, those are rural communities. These are people who would not have probably been a fan of cannabis or growing cannabis or thought they'd ever be growing cannabis who are now cultivating thousands and thousands of acres. Does that have any bearing on the, uh, you know, the more red states and red areas and localities and jurisdictions that may be presented with this, you know, you talk about the public opinion polls. Are the rural communities moving towards a more favorable stance on cannabis legalization? I don't know. Put it to you guys. Well, Lily, I like your take on the historical perspective because history does indeed repeat itself oftentimes. And, and I wonder how long can the U.S. sit here in a position and ignore this topic, even with COVID as being a more pressing priority from a public policy standpoint and a public health standpoint, how do you ignore the fact that your neighbors to the north, ultimately your neighbors to the south, and literally, you know, more than half, if not 60 or 70 percent of the countries in the entire Western Hemisphere have legalized some form of cannabis for commercial regulated export and domestic use? How long can we sit back and just be a fly on the wall and watch it all happen and not assume the natural position that the United States is supposed to assume on things, for better or for worse, as a world leader on this topic. I couldn't agree more. It goes to that legal notion for the people, by the people. Um, and if, yeah, we're the U.S. is sandwiched between Canada and Mexico. Mexico's had some issues rolling out as, uh, you, you know, um, topic for another podcast probably. But... Um, so we're sandwiched between 
we're le- everywhere, 90-something countries, um, the pressure's on, people, it's what the people want. So I think that just makes all the more sense why someone right now would step up and try to give the people what they want. And I think cannabis legalization is generally what what's wanted on some in one way or another. Let's start with medical, whatever it may be. Well, yeah, and everybody's got to pick their preference from a policy perspective and, and what their motivation to get involved in it. But the COVID scenario presents two really, really pressing issues. Number one, a, a health impact, a medical impact of what cannabis can do. We'll talk about that here in a moment. And then the economic stimulus impact. Again, countries around the world saying we're going to use cannabis in some form or fashion to be an economic driver. Panama, Costa Rica, uh, Colombia, Brazil, Mexico, the list goes on and on and on. And that's just in this hemisphere. And to your point, Eric, you talk about the farmers, right? Farmers are going to plant whatever makes the farmers money so long as it's legal. So I think that when a farmer is able to support his or her family and is able to put food on the table and to be able to service loans and to provide, they're going to grow whatever is legal for them to grow and that can be distributed at the highest price point. That's a fact. That that doesn't break down along party lines, I can tell you that. And we've seen folks in Kentucky uh, sort of you know drive that debate. And Kentucky's an interesting study in this, right? If you look at Kentucky, Kentucky was a number one hemp producer for a number of years. You got Mitch McConnell leading the way in hemp policy at the federal level, not particularly being a friend to marijuana or the cannabis side of things. But also some of the largest grows in American history were in Kentucky of marijuana. If you look at books and you look at the history of things like the cornbread mafia. So the I don't think things break down by party lines when you're looking at farmers and how they're going to decide whether or not they're going to grow a crop because it's something that could put the most dollars on their table, uh, on, the, on their family's table or, or to pay their, their loans back. But really, as, as you look at the opportunities here, what do you think is going to be the, the catalyst that changes it? Is it the fact that COVID can, based on studies we've seen, potentially stop the transmission or mitigate human exposure to being infected by the virus? And by the way, the way I, I, I've heard it described, uh, have you read these articles? I, I uh, haven't seen a lot of them yet. I've right. seen the headlines, but... So, so the article basically says that... Um, Cannabis, and there was a variety of different forms of cannabis, ratios, THC, uh, uh, CBD, oils, smokable flour, etc. And they tried all these, and they determined that um, cannabis tends to eliminate the ability of what's called the protein spike to attach to the human body. So here's how I think I can describe what that means for our listeners in, in non-scientific technology. You know what Velcro is, right? Two pieces of Velcro stick together because one side hooks into the other. But if you turn the Velcro over, what happens? Nothing sticks to each other. That's what cannabis does to your body. It takes one side of the Velcro and flips it over so that the COVID virus cannot attach to your body. That's allegedly what the studies would seem to indicate. Does that become the driver that accelerates cannabis reform? And we know, by the way, right now that the U.S. government has created subcommittees through its National Institute of Health to study cannabis and coronavirus. And that's been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks now. So do you think that's a driver besides the economic motivation? I think it's both and other things as well in the aggregate. I think it's it's all this overwhelming evidence that this this plant has a place economically, scientifically, in so many different 
it, it has so many different layers to it and it hits so many different populations that ultimately I think from a business point of view and from a scientific point of view, it's, we, it can't be ignored any longer. Well, in looking at, uh, by the way, the Velcro analogy, I mean, come on, it's perfect. <laughs> uh, but, but looking at it, the economics of it for a second, and of course, our president, he's a businessman. So if you can try to put a dollar value on what federal cannabis legalization would look like, I'm looking at this, uh, this new frontier data study about the, the revenue just in Colorado over six years. And the number is about $7.8 billion. So who and how can you extrapolate that number at the, to a federal level if you legalize this, uh, this plant for, for medical or recreational use, whatever it is, at a time when we're looking down the, the potential of a recession— Depression, who knows? Everybody's talking about uh, the the financial and economic fallout of all of this. It just seems like a heck of a good move. I've, I'd like to see more on that data because I just – I have a hard time believing it. As, a, as an attorney who deals in the cannabis space, most of my clients' profits are up by 30% right now. And it, in 31 states, this, this has been deemed an essential – it's an essential and it's illegal at the same time. That is something begging to be reconciled. Absolutely. But there's a counterpoint, Eric, and we talked about this, right? <laughs> this, is not, this is not all rosy for cannabis, even though we might sit here and believe objectively that it is. And I think we all believe that. We're not drinking Kool-Aid here. We're looking at various factors, hist history included, to say that this is the direction things are going. But there's a notion that through impeachment, let alone COVID, that the federal government has so-called bigger fish to fry and that this is no longer a high priority. Economics or not, what do you take on that? How do you deal with that particular issue uh, from the naysayers that say cannabis days are numbered, or at least it's not going to advance as rapidly as it may have been previously? Well, let, let's talk about near-term history on that one. Um, to say that it's no longer a priority, I don't think it ever was a priority. We've got the Safe Banking Act that's been sitting with the Senate for time. It's been multiple. It's been introduced there multiple times, and it's just been it stalls there every single time, and it's always. The excuse, we've got bigger fish to fry. It's not time. We don't have time to deal with this yet. So I think that's just um, an inaccurate way to look at it because it, I don't think it ever was a priority. Right. And I'm sure Colorado lawmakers, until it was a, a passed by a, a citizen ballot measure, they probably took the same perspective. It wasn't until they were confronted with, now we have to actually figure this out, when the, uh, the rest of it fell into place. Well, let's not forget that our prior governor here in Colorado, who did make an unsuccessful bid for, for the Democratic nomination, John Hickenlooper, was no friend to the cannabis industry. Something that grew before his very eyes, that his state was responsible for regulating, but he very much viewed this as not a priority, and that's something he advised other states to not do. And then we look at you know our current governor, who thinks that this is a wonderful thing because it's regulated well, the actors try their best, they be want to become good corporate citizens, and that it's an economic driver. Um, so for different strokes, for different folks, certainly. But at the end of the day, Lily, you're right. I don't think it's ever been a priority. And the fact that we even got 
momentum to create the Rohrbacher Farr Amendment initially, uh, the amendments in, 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 in Congress that prohibited the federal government from spending some of their Department of Justice dollars to shut down marijuana businesses, that's a miracle in and of itself. Not because of the, the lack of advocacy. There was tremendous advocacy and lobbying going on, but that you can get politicians to pay for it. To your point about not being a priority, and you talked about Obama before, um, when Obama ran against Mitt Romney, there was a debate. That debate was at the University of Denver. It was the first debate in that season. And Mitt Romney was asked by a either Denver Post or Rocky Mountain News reporter, I don't think it was Ricardo Baca, but it was somebody on his team, I believe, who said, uh, you know, Mr. Romney, can you, Governor Romney, can you please comment on uh, marijuana legalization and, and policies that are advancing there? And his response was flippant. Let's talk about something real. Next question. So we've seen how far that's come. Um, and, and by the way, uh, again, I'm not getting political, but does Joe Biden remind you of John McCain running against Obama <laughs> the first time? Isn't it just like a patsy uh, opponent that, that he's coming up? I, I don't know. I, I hope it's not, but it seems like it is. Taking a major uh, shift here in the conversation, we're going to throw back to uh, the time when you were in high school and you were in civics. And we think about constitutionality. Well, in the last uh, couple of months, there's been uh, a, a lot of a lot of things have changed. One of these is the stay-at-home order, which uh, prior to this pandemic, I don't know about you guys, but I never really thought would would be something that you know, I would see. Um, and we've had a lot of questions came up when this happened, which was, can I actually get in trouble if I go outside? If I leave my home, is there actual punishable laws that can be enforced around this? Uh, so let's talk for a moment about the constitutionality of the stay-at-home order. And perhaps if you've had uh, any cases, we don't need to talk about them specifically, but just people running into issues with law enforcement um, who, who got in trouble during this time. Yeah, I think that's a big hot topic. Lawyers debate it constantly right now. The legal issues are endless in this, in this pandemic. Um, and so... The, yeah, everyone wants to know, will I get pulled over? Will I get arrested? Is the power really there? And I think that's an interesting question that would be an interesting case to hear before a court because the side, two sides of the argument are very telling and very they're very strong. So when it comes to the constitutionality of things of this sort, you look, there's a legal test that we use called strict scrutiny. And so the first component is you get, they have to have a the government must have a compelling interest and then it must be the least restrictive means the the means must be the least restrictive in carrying out that government interest and i mean i'd say a compelling interest i think there's certainly one in trying to mitigate the effects of a pandemic i, I think it, you'd be crazy not to think that's compelling but is it the least are, are these stay-at-home orders making people stay at home depriving them of potentially depriving them of their liberty is that the least restrictive means of carrying out that compelling interest? I think that that's where there's room to argue and where reasonable minds could defer. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. In other <laughs> words, in other words, if the, if the virus doesn't get you, you're going to lose your job and, and something else is going to get you. I mean, it really is a catch-22. And, you know, uh, we've talked about this, Eric. I, I, I'm not defending any 
governmental action one way or the other. But what I am saying is uh, this is a no-win situation for any politician, right? No, There's no game plan. There's no playbook for this except from, what, 1918? We're going to go back to 1918 and do what they did back then? That's as much thought as we've put towards a scenario like this so you can't win as a politician. Uh, one thing I would say is that if you look at what happened in Wisconsin, to your point about interesting legal issues, that the governor's state lockdown, was str- it was stricken because it was indefinite. It was ambiguous and indefinite, and it just went on and on and on without having some sort of you know, firm reason and firm deadline. That's a really, really interesting argument. And then I also look at the fact that law enforcement doesn't want to, most law enforcement, they don't want to arrest somebody because they're going to the beach or because they're playing basketball at a park. Um, they, they, they don't want to do that, although there certainly is law enforcement that, that get on that power trip. And, on, and let's not get into this topic, but we saw what happened in Minnesota the other day. And there are, you know, there's various cuts of law enforcement uh, personnel across the board. But as you look at the legal issues, you know, should people be arrested? I saw in Santa Cruz that people were knocking door to door saying, uh, show me that you live in this house or you're not just renting it as a vacation rental because it's a stay at home order. If you're renting it as a vacation rental, you're not at home. And so you must go. I mean, things were happening like that, which blows my mind. All of that said, one thing to add to the legal analysis you just uh, very, very articulately provided is this notion of police power. We always remember that there's a notion under the law that governments have the ability to execute very broad police powers. What does a police power mean? If there's something that impacts society as a whole by way of health and safety, then the government has the ability to exercise police powers. Um, you know, stop signs, red lights, things like that. How did the government get the authority to do that? By virtue of its police power in enacting laws pursuant to that police power. So it is extremely broad, but it's not indefinite and it can't be vague. So is it indefinite and vague if I go to a friend's house on Memorial Day weekend and I go to a barbecue and the neighbors call the police because they see a gathering of five or six people outside? What's a police officer supposed to do? And does the government have the authority to do that? I don't know the answer to these questions, but against the backdrop of police power, it seems like it's pretty darn broad. I agree. And I I think the other side of this, too, is the precedent that it would set, that I think a court would be hesitant to uphold a lot of these orders. An analogy I like to draw is with the Patriot Act. After 9-11, we had privacy rights taken from us that we never got back that to this day we still we still don't have back and to uphold these quote unquote violations of liberty interests in such a way that forcing people to stay home to deal with economic and health crisis not economic the economic I recant that one um the the health crisis is just I think a court would be very hesitant to do that for fear of the precedent that would be set. Well, it's one thing to throw it back to the FDR playbook on the federal cannabis legalization, the 1918 playbook on the Spanish flu, and that's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother topic. But uh, guys, it's been an absolutely riveting discussion on both of these topics. And Lily, we just, uh, we so appreciate you coming on and uh, stirring the pot with us. It's been great. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hoban Minute. Do you have any ideas for episode topics or guests? We would like to hear from you. Reach out to us at media at hoban.law and stay tuned for more on the Hoban Minute.